1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or tick it. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary, and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. The 14th century prince, John of Gaunt, was one of the most powerful figures in medieval English history. He amassed huge wealth and influence, and his progeny would rule England for centuries. But his own quest to secure a European crown ended in dismal failure. The historian, author and podcaster, Helen Carr, has explored John's life in her new biography, The Red Prince, as well as in a recent article for BBC History magazine. In today's episode, she reveals the highs and lows of his remarkable career. Putting the questions to Helen was BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar.
2: So John of Gaunt was the son of a king and also the father of a king. But how much do you think the fact that he himself never wore the crown shaped his life?
3: I think hugely. I think he spent most of his life trying to wear some form of crown in um you know this started quite early on for him for in 1357 um, few people know know this, but he was actually floated as a potential heir for the Scottish crown following David II, who was the son of Robert the Bruce. And this was part of um, diplomatic negotiations between Edward III um, and and David to have his son as as heir to the throne of Scotland. Even though this never materialised, I think it did give a sort of craving for kingship and status to a very ambitious prince. John of Gaunt was hugely ambitious. And I think that this sparked something in him that led to his pursuit of Castile later on in his life, of which he spent 20 years trying to claim the throne of Castile by right of his wife.
2: So if we could just look a little bit at John's family background. So he was the third son, I believe, of of Edward III and Philippa of Hainault, What were his prospects when he was born then?
3: Yeah, so he was the third surviving son um, of Edward and Philippa. And he was born three years into the Hundred Years' War. So he was born shortly before the Battle of Sluis, which took place in 1340. Um, And this was the first sort of major naval battle of the Hundred Years' War. And it was actually a successful English victory and it claimed um, the channel for the English. And so, you know, Edward III had control over this stretch of water. Um, so John of Gaunt was very much born into a period of war, um, nobility, chivalry, martial glory, and this is something that really shaped him for the rest of his life. Um, he was placed in the royal nursery from a young age. Um, so as a, as a baby, he was he was in the royal nursery with his siblings, but then he moved into the household of his older brother, the Black Prince, when he was about eight years old, who um, was 10 years his senior. And the Black Prince was you know he was the celebrity prince of England at this time he was the hero of cressy you know at age 16 he won his spurs at cressy um and he was shaped to be the future king of England you know he was this celebrity heroic martial figure and that he really influenced john of gaunt and i think that edward iii wanted to create um a network through his sons of this sort of sense of martial glory. Um, He really, uh, he he tried to enhance their ambition. I think he he pushed John of Gaunt to be a a successful diplomat. Um, He was constantly using his sons to gain status throughout Europe. And so Gaunt being in the Black Prince's household from this early age says to me that the king wanted his son to learn from a young age what was expected of him as as a Plantagenet prince. And this was definitely something that, you know, moved forward throughout Gaunt's life.
2: A couple of name questions I'd be keen to ask you is, first of all, where does Of Gaunt come from? And also, you talked about the Black Prince earlier, and you've called your book The Red Prince. So what's that name about?
3: So firstly, John of Gaunt is really just in relation to where he was born, which is quite common. It's a common trope for for royal princes. For example, the Black Prince, that moniker is something that was established in the the Victorian period in the 19th century. Um, So in his time, he was Edward of Woodstock because he was born at Woodstock. John of Gaunt was Gaunt because he was born in Ghent. So it's a derivation of the the word Ghent that we know. So he was born whilst um, Philip of Hainault, his mother, was in a sort of... um, I suppose, very comfortable captivity, she was used as collateral for a large loan that Edward III was given by Flemish merchants to support him in the war. So she stayed heavily pregnant with John at the Abbey of saint in ghent whilst um, Edward sailed back to England to um, collate his army for this, this battle that I just mentioned at Sluice. So the reason that he was called Gaunt is because he was literally born in, in Ghent. Um, the Red Prince, so yes, this is basically because I felt that most people have heard of the Black Prince. Black, The Black Prince was this famous older brother, but nobody really knows who John of Gaunt really was. He was a name that's familiar, but nobody really knows exactly who he was. And the reason I called him the Red Prince, if you fast forward the Wars of the Roses, you've got the White Rose of York and you've got the Red Rose of Lancaster. And John of Gaunt uh, was the Duke of Lancaster later in his life. He was the second Duke of Lancaster. And it is said historically that the red rose of Lancaster was grown in the gardens of the Savoy Palace, which is John of Gaunt's palace. So that's why I chose to call him the Red Prince. Um, And rather than, you know, referencing his name John of Gaunt it felt like it just felt like a nice title that, that suited the book really and suited what I was trying to say about him
2: yeah actually coming on to Lancaster so that's that's a huge part of his life and status how does he acquire these lambs in this title
3: So this was through his first wife, Blanche of Lancaster, who's particularly famous um, for anybody who's familiar with Geoffrey Chaucer's Book of the Duchess, because the Book of the Duchess was written as a eulogy to to Blanche. Um, She was the daughter of Henry, the first Duke of Lancaster, who was the cousin of Edward III, and he was also a very great friend of Edward III. He was a loyal friend. Um, But like many of the nobles during the Hundred Years' War, with victory in France, money came with that and land. So Henry was one of these noblemen who accumulated great wealth from his successes and his martial victories in France. So he accumulated land and title, lands such as Bergerac. um, But he also had an extensive amount of land in England as well. And for all of his uh, support and his loyalty during the Hundred Years' War, he was gifted the dukedom by Edward III an acknowledgement of this, but he was also awarded the Duchy of Lancaster as a Palatinate, which means that it's ruled separately to the crown. So in effect, it's you, you could almost look at it like it's its own separate kingdom. Um, so this made him the most wealthy nobleman in The country. And so when he died, probably of plague in 1361, and then Blanche's older um, sister, Maud, also died shortly after her father. Blanche inherited all of this land, land that was originally split between her and her sister. She inherited all all of it. And so, of course, during the Middle Ages, that actually meant that John of Gaunt inherited this land. So coupled with being a prince, this made him incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful.
2: And you talked a bit earlier about the Hundred Years' War and the Black Prince's starring role in that. Did John of Gaunt himself see much action in this conflict?
3: So I think how I should begin this is a lot of people seem to think the Hundred Years' War was a series of famous battles. In actual fact, there were very, very few battles that were fought during the Hundred Years' War. It was almost a war of evasion in many ways. England would uh, constantly invade France, the English would invade France in various campaigns led by the king or led by um, led by his sons. But the French would usually avoid pitch battle because pitch battle didn't go too well for them. Think Cressy, uh, think Poitiers, and then later think Agincourt. It didn't ever really go in their favour. What did seem to work was avoiding the English and applying scorched earth policy to the land. So removing any sort of supply, um, food, um access, any loot from the English path. So this is something that happened again and again and again and particularly in Gaunt's experience of his campaigns in France, so age ten he did experience one naval battle when at the Battle of Winchelsea, which is just off the just off the English coast against um, Castilian galleys who were um, fighting against the English as as allies to the French. Um, but then it wasn't up until thirteen sixty seven the Battle of Nahera, which took place on Castilian soil, which is why I believe he had such an affinity with Castile following this battle that he experienced a pitched battle. And that was alongside his brother, the Black Prince. And it was an incredibly formative experience for him to, you know, be at war. And um, Chandos Herald, one of the chroniclers, or uh, I should really just say narrative, Uh, writers of the time, described Gaunt as fighting nobly and full of valour in this battle. So it was an incredible experience for him. um, And it was steeped in this chivalric glory that he tried to hold on to and emulate throughout his life.
2: Now, in the article that you wrote for the magazine a few months ago, you described John's repeated attempts to seize the throne of Castile why did this become such an obsession for him, do you think?
3: I think, as I said, he had an interest in kingship. I think he was an incredibly ambitious prince. And I think that he levelled himself on a par with his older brother. I mean, his older brother trained him. They were brothers in arms. So it seems realistic to me that he would want to be sort of at a at a level of the Black Prince. And he wanted to prove his own esteem and valour. Um it was really this this battle in the that seemed to have piqued an interest in Castile. Castile was a useful um, it was a useful area in the Iberian Peninsula to control because it had, because of the shipping because of the size of Castile. So Castile was a, one of the series of kingdoms that you had, which now make up Spain. So you had Castile was this large um, kingdom right in the middle, and you had Navarre at the top. Aragon and Portugal, and then below there was Granada. So it was really the sort of vast amount of Spain that this this uh, territory included. Um, Castile had historically been loyal to the French. They had this very, this this Castilian superpower ally throughout the Hundred Years' War, and I think Gaunt did astutely realise that if he could claim kingship of Castile by right of his second wife Constance, he would have the the control of this territory, which would then enhance English power in Europe. And that was really the Plantagenet ambition was to extend English power throughout the continent, a sort of creating, I, I think, you know, in a way, akin to the Angevin Empire, this creating this sort of sense of a Plantagenet Empire. That's what I think that ultimately the ambition of Edward and his and his sons was. Um, so that's why Castile and the kingship of Castile was important to John of Gaunt's.
2: And why ultimately did he fail in this quest? Was it simply just too ambitious?
3: I think it was too ambitious, and I think that he didn't know the terrain. The terrain of Spain and Castile was very different to what his army was used to, what he was used to. And, you know, there are um, cases in the in the chronicles that talk about the army's experience in Castile and how they grumbled about the the dry land and the heat and they reminisced of France when they were campaigning in France, and its its lustre and its its lakes um, and its accessibility to water, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that it was ultimately disease um, and inability to cope in the heat of Spain, and that that sort of dusty terrain that they struggled with. And Gaunt, he didn't know the land; he'd been to Castile once in his lifetime. And you know, when you're trying to conquer a country as its king. I think it is highly ambitious if you don't if you don't know the land, the people, the terrain itself. Still to
0: come on the History Extra podcast.
3: And there was a series of of, of occasions where he very publicly fell out with Richard. Um, you know, the raised voices. There was also an occasion where rumour had been spread that Richard was trying to have his uncle assassinated, and vice versa.
4: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com History Extra.
1: Life is a highway.
2: But despite the failures in Castile, is it fair to say that his power and influence was continuing to grow at home in England?
3: Yes, it was slowly burning and it was this slow sort of bubbling that I think that he was actually really the most effective ruler. I think if he had sort of left Castile to its own devices and just focused on his duchy lands, he would have been an incredibly powerful and very, very good um, feudal overlord, and he was. So the Duchy of Lancaster was run like clockwork. He had um, a retinue, an enormous retinue of servants and retainers. Um, you know, so he had household servants, people who were around his person, then he had land administrators. Um, he had employed an, an incredible amount of people who effectively ran his, his lands for him. Um and very successfully. And his accumulated wealth, he looked after his tenants, he looked after his people, and he was very popular in his lands.
2: And then once um, Edward Third, his father, dies, he then becomes essentially the de facto ruler of England for, for quite a few years in the minority of Richard II. How successful was he in that role?
3: He actually tried to stay out of it as much as possible. He was more of an overseer. So when Richard ascended the throne, what was established was a a series of continual councils. So he had um, a coterie of councillors chosen largely from the Black Prince's household and his, um, his immediate retinue to support the young king. Gaunt was away from that. He sort of had a step back from being an active member of this council, but he oversaw what was going on. And he tried, as far as I was aware in my research, he tried not to have his finger in in too many pies around this time. However, he was incredibly powerful and he did have the final say on things. Um, And this did did make him quite unpopular. Um, I think he was also very aware that people were suspicious of him and they were suspicious that he wanted the crown for himself. So, by taking a step back, by constantly pledging his loyalty and fealty to Richard, and even on publicly in Parliament on bended knee, um, he needed to not act like he was ruling the country on behalf of the of the young king. Because I think that that would have gone very badly for him.
2: And one of the best known events from early in Richard II's reign is, of course, the Peasants' Revolt. What impact did that have on John of Gaunt?
3: So I find this really interesting because for posterity, John of Gaunt has been associated with the Peasants' Revolt and the reason for the tax increase, um, the reason for the riots. But in actual fact, John of Gaunt really had very little to do with it. This was all started in 1380 in November in Parliament that was held in Northampton, which is where Archbishop Simon Sudbury opened Parliament and the tax issue was raised. And it was there that it was decided that um, the tax was going to be levied. John of Gaunt wasn't actually there. He was up in Berwick. He was um, on one of his border negotiations with the Scots on one of the March days. And it was only after this decision was reached that he travelled down to join the latter half of Parliament. So he wasn't there for this decision. Um, He was particularly unpopular. And the reason why he was a target of the Peasants' Revolt was because of burgeoning unpopularity and discontent in London in the lead up. So really largely in the mid 1370s, around the time of the Good Parliament and around the time of his brother and father's death and Richard's ascension. That was really when he became particularly unpopular in London. Um, and I want to sort of stress that it's in London. He was unpopular with merchant oligarchs in London, he was unpopular with the clergy in London, he was unpopular with the people in London, particularly the people in the city, because Gaunt didn't like how these wealthy merchants had. Sway and power in the Commons over the Crown. He was a royalist um, through and through, and he he believed in Crown superiority and um, and Crown authority. He didn't really like the fact that the Commons, particularly in things like the Good Parliament, were able to um, suppress the King, and they were able to um, you know state their grievances so so publicly and actually have the King step down and and, and accept and accept them. So that's when Gaunt became particularly unpopular. In his lands outside of London, during and after the the Peasants' Revolt, you see something very different. You see actually people in Leicester, for example, defending Gaunt's property. So it wasn't that he was an unpopular, you know, uh, suspicious uncle who was hell-bent on taking his nephew's throne. He was really just unpopular in one area of, of England, which, to be honest, was its own, really its own kind of, you know, I suppose, demi sort of country in itself, a little bit how we see London today as the sort of hub of the financial capital. And, you know, the attitudes there are very different to how they might be elsewhere in the country. And the same applied in
2: in, in this period as well. Did the rebels seek to attack uh, any of John's people or his property in London?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were a retainer of John of Gaunt's and you were wearing a Lancastrian livery collar of linked S's, you were quickly you pilloried, you, you were not in a safe space during the Peasants' Revolt and he did actually have some of members of his household who were killed. So, for example, at the same time as Archbishop Simon Sudbury was dragged out of um, the Tower of London and beheaded, Gaunt's physician, Brother William Appleton, was also beheaded at the same time purely for being associated with with John of Gaunt. Um, Fortunately for Gaunt and fortunately for his son, Henry Bolingbroke, the rebels who infiltrated the Tower were unaware that the young nobleman Henry Gaunt's son was actually hiding in the Tower of London at the time, and they fortunately for him they did not find him um, because I think that he would have received uh, the same the same fate. There was no they you know they took no prisoners at, 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 during this rebellion. Um, Gaunt's property was destroyed, his Savoy Palace, which is was this beautiful um camelot type building on the river thames in the same location as the savoy hotel today which i think is wonderful because it's sort of you know perpetually this place of luxury um and grandeur and it is um it is actually even memorialized in the and on a plaque outside the Savoy hotel that um the savoy palace once stood there um so the savoy palace was destroyed partly because you know uh The rebels who um, entered the palace, these were London rebels who entered the palace, didn't realise when they were looting and they were um, burning Gaunt's goods that some of the barrels that they had rolled onto a pyre that they had built in the Great Hall were filled with gunpowder. So in actual fact, they ended up blowing um, part of the palace down, not just, you know, setting fire to the tapestries and headboards and drinking Gaunt's wine and, and stealing.
2: And did John of Gaunt then remain unpopular in London in the the years after the Peasants' Revolt?
3: Yeah, there was always an element of unpopularity in London, really, right up until um, the decade before his death. Um, what he did do, though, is he took a step back. He was far less he was far less obvious um, about his actions. He. He tried not to fall out with the clergy so much. There was a period of sort of fallouts leading up to the the peasants' revolt, um, where he threatened to drag various bishops to, to court by their hair, etc., um, which didn't go down very well. Um, so he he tried to he tried to act with more penitence. He also ended his very public relationship with Catherine Swinford, his mistress, um, which he. He saw as uh, possibly a reason for either um, people's rage against him, or potentially the wrath of God against him. He could have seen this as a sort of divine punishment. So he ended his relationship with Catherine. That was quite a considerable act, considering that the couple had had four children together. She was very much um, his public mistress. He would he would take her to events. She was she was a figure at court um, instead of his wife. So that was quite significant. And that happened almost immediately after the Peasants' Revolt. So he really just went into a period of quiet consolidation, and he tried to focus on his intention to take Castile. And I think he wanted to, to leave England. I didn't. I think he wanted to sort of get out um, and and rule elsewhere. And whilst he was in England, whilst he was unable to go to Castile, he actually invested in properties outside of London. And I think that what's really Significant as well is that he never rebuilt the Savoy Palace, and this was the palace of Lancastrian wealth. This represented Lancaster, and he never rebuilt it. And instead, he channeled his money and his energy into a vast building project at Kenilworth and Warwickshire.
2: And then, once uh, Richard II came of age, what kind of relationship did the two men have? Did, was John prepared to take a backseat?
3: <laughs> Not a very good one. Um, so, really, you know, where where the peasants' revolt was, John of Gaunt's vulnerable downfall it was richards um i suppose his his bolstering and his it's where he managed to create a sense of self importance because he was able to diminish this band of rebels with his um famous address to them at the end of the revolt so after this i think he he it was a sort of i suppose rebellious teenager um Falling out with their older caregiver. So it's almost like a father, a father-son, rebellious teenager kind of attitude. However, the rebellious teenager, Richard II, was egotistical. Um, he believed that he was um he was divinely appointed. He believed in providential kingship, um, and he believed that he could do no wrong. So his word was God's word, effectively. So when John of Gaunt was dealing with that kind of character. He had to tread very, very carefully, and there was a series of of, of occasions where he very publicly fell out with Richard. Um, you know, the raised voices. There was also an occasion where rumor had been spread that Richard was trying to have his uncle assassinated, and vice versa. There was another occasion where John, where John Gaunt was accused of trying to assassinate Richard, um, which I know certainly was not true, but that was but that was largely down to the circle of um, contemporaries that Richard held close around him, people like Robert de Vere, um, who disliked Gaunt, they disliked his power and they disliked his authority. So really they had a very fractious relationship following the Peasants' Revolt um, up until again the end of his life when Gaunt returned from Castile.
2: Now one figure that you briefly mentioned earlier who I'd be interested to talk a little bit about is Chaucer. And What was his relationship with John of Gaunt?
3: Yeah, this is a really interesting one. So I think mostly people assume that Gaunt was a patron of Chaucer, that he um, supported his his work and his writing. But in fact, it was really, we believe, only the Book of the Duchess that that Gaunt patronised. I I don't think that he um, patronised Chaucer's work thereafter. Um, However, I think he did enable Chaucer to get some roles within uh, the service of the crown. So uh, Chaucer was originally, um, part of the English army. So he went on campaign with Gaunt and it was likely that he went with uh, with Gaunt on a particular campaign in 1359 into France, where they were gone for about six months. Um, and it was on that campaign that Chaucer was actually captured, but, and he likely talks about that period of captivity, um, in in his work, I believe it's in the Knight's Tale that he talks he talks about that. So, Gaunt and Chaucer were really sort of more brothers at arms. They were fought together. Chaucer was in the household of his older brother Lionel, um, employed by Lionel's first wife um, Elizabeth de Burgh, and that was that was where Gaunt first met Chaucer, and they were pretty much exactly the same age. And it was around Christmas, just just before Gaunt married Blanche, so he was. 18, when he met Chaucer, it's a difficult relationship to explain because we don't really know. But what they seem to have done is sort of moved in and out of each other's life stories, and they sort of would appear here and there. and And Gaunt certainly cared for Chaucer. He um, gifted his family uh, titles, money. Um, he made sure that Chaucer's daughter attended a good convent, um, and he also took his son Thomas. Um, it took Castile with him as part of his as part of his campaign. Later on in life, of course, they became brothers-in-law because when Gaunt married Catherine Swinford, uh, who she was the sister of Chaucer's wife Philippa. So that's what I mean they sort of moved on and off the pages of each other's life. Um, even though we can't really know exactly how close they were, we can sort of, you know, trace, you know, do dots to dots throughout their life to try and sort of work out exactly. You know what they meant to each other, but what is clear is that Gaunt respected Chaucer and he wanted to care for him and care for his family. And he and he tried to put Chaucer in um, positions of um, of posterity and of importance throughout his life. But I don't think that he was necessarily aware of or patronised Chaucer's work as we know it today.
2: And um, John of Gaunt was able to marry Catherine Swinford because his second wife had died at this point, because hadn't he? Because earlier in the story, he'd had to give her up as a mistress.
3: Yes, yeah, so he had three wives. First, there was Blanche. Then he married Constance of Castile, which is how he managed to uh, lay claim to the throne of Castile in the first place. She was the heiress um, of the usurped Pedro the Cruel. Um, and so, you know, they both had a, a joint interest in regaining Castile, um, Constance, because of her father being usurped and murdered, um, and gone through this idea of. Plantagen expansion. And then after she died, he finally um, married his mistress and the mother of his children, who are known as the Beauforts, Catherine Swinford.
2: Now, so when John of Gaunt died, having failed to secure the throne of Castile, do you think he'd have seen his life as something of a failure?
3: Yeah, and I I do. And I think um, whether he saw his life as a failure, I'm not sure, but I think that he was incredibly distressed at the situation in which he was leaving his family in and the world and, and, you know, the situation of the world at time, the world he knew. Um, You know, this was a period um, with massive political unrest in England. Richard II was um, fully embarked on what has become known as Richard's tyranny. Um, His son had been um, exiled. So Henry had gone to France. He'd gone to seek help from the Valois in France um, at Gaunt's suggestion um, because he he was popular in France. He spent a lot of time there as a diplomat. He didn't know what was going to happen to his lands, uh, his family, his, his son and heir. Um, he didn't know if they would survive. He had legitimised his Beaufort children because he was trying to consolidate. He was trying to make sure that everybody was cared for. And I believe that that is the reason that he married Catherine as well. I think it was an honourable act. Um, so I think that the the gaunt that we see at the end of his life is very much how Shakespeare portrays him in Richard II. You know, we meet him in the first act and he's described by Richard as old gaunt, time-honoured Lancaster. And I think that he is this old gaunt by the end of his life. I think that he's tired. He's unwell. He's very unwell. It's an illness. We're not sure what it was, but it was certainly an illness that kills him in 1399. And we see him in this play, um, effectively on his deathbed. He dies on stage. and I think that he is left distressed and morose and deeply saddened by the state of the realm in comparison to what it was when he knew it as a young man, you know, this place of of tournaments and jousting and chivalry, war, his father, his brothers, this united family. Gaunt was really the son of Edward III that tried to keep the family together after his father's death. He went from having brothers, close, close brothers, brothers at arms, you know, his relationship with the Black Prince to having Richard, who had his own uncle murdered. You know, he had the Duke of Gloucester murdered at Calais for being one of the Lord's appellant and he had him smothered with a mattress. I mean, that is very different to this close-knit Plantagenet Family that Gaunt knew before the death of his father and his brother. So I think that the end of his life, yes, he is this sad figure um, who is who is lost and uncertain of, of of the fate of his loved ones and his legacy.
2: But then, of course, unbeknown to John, his son Henry would actually very soon usurp the throne and become become the king. Do you do you think that Henry the IV- Fourth? sought to emulate his father or modelled his rule in any way on John?
3: I certainly think he did um, in John's lifetime. I don't know so much whether he did as a, as a ruler. I imagine he would have done because I think his father was of, of great importance to him and he got great influence on him. John of Gaunt was a very mediating Presence. He had a temper. He had a very strong Plantagenet temper, which is what got him in so much trouble in the 1370s. But later on, he wanted to try and keep the peace. And he was a very good diplomat, a very good diplomat, far better than he was a soldier. However, we don't remember diplomats. We remember military heroes, don't we? Um, Hence the reason the Black Prince is far more um, well known. That sense of diplomacy was definitely taken on board by Henry Bolingbroke throughout John of Gaunt's life. um, And I think it's probably what kept him what kept him alive um, in, the final, in the final decades of Richard's reign um, because obviously Richard went on this tyranny and he um, he sought out all of the lords who had appealed the appellants against him um, in the 1380s and he had them um, tried and either exiled or killed or executed. So I think that it's that sense of diplomacy and reason and calm that kept Henry um, safe, which was definitely um, projected by Gaunt And Gaunt was constantly advising his son what to do. He was constantly giving him advice. And I also think that, um, you know, we might think Gaunt would have been proud that his son became king, but I think he would have been furious. I don't think that's how he wanted things to go at all. Um, He swore to his brother, the Black Prince, that he would keep Richard safe. Um, And then as soon as he dies, his his son comes in and has him overthrown and thrown into Pontefract Castle, where he starves to death. There is a myth that he was force-fed rock cakes, but that, I'm pretty certain that's not true. Um, so I think Gaunt was an influence on Henry, but I also think that his death liberated Henry to be um, decisive and sort of shake-free shake, shake free that sort of um, desperate need for Gaunt to try and reconsolidate and regain this strong Plantagenet family.
2: And then through Henry IV and then... His sons, and then you know, also through other branches of his family, John of Gaunt is one of the f- fathers of the of the English and then British monarchy. Have like, subsequent monarchs and royals sought to enhance his reputation in any way as this father of the family?
3: Yeah, probably, probably through the Beauforts. You'd have to ask. You'd have to ask a Tudor historian exactly how that might have been. How that might have been done, but there are constant references to John of Gaunt and the legacy of John of Gaunt and you know in whether that's in literature um, like verse literature or whether it's in I suppose in administrative records there is references to him being this sort of patriarch Um, especially if you're looking at the Tudor link because obviously Henry Tudor was clutching at straws to try and um, legitimize his ascension to the to the throne so anything to kind of draw on that I mean really I suppose yes you have to only look at the 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 Tudor rose you've got the red rose of Lancaster there um merged with the white rose of York creating this thus the Tudor rose so I guess that is a direct visual um link to John of Gaunt and Henry Tudor's um legitimacy as the as the king of England through his ancestor.
2: Now the the medieval period is Full of princes and princes who never actually became king. What is it about John of Gaunt that particularly interested you and made you want to write his life story?
3: It was actually his castle building and his um, property. So it was the Savoy Palace, and I found it fascinating that this area of London that I would sort of, you know, I'd walk to work up and down um, the Strand, and. I found it fascinating that there was this incredible palace there. And I started reading into the palace for academic purposes. I wrote a whole thesis on why the um, palace was never rebuilt and all of these different ideas as to why that happened. And I became fascinated in John of Gaunt's character um, throughout throughout that process. And I used to love going down sort of past the Savoy Hotel towards the riverbank. And there's all these little um, alleyways and streets that you know you couldn't drive down and you have to walk and it's all Savoy streets Savoy place and it was amazing to sort of mentally reconstruct this building and what it would have looked like so I suppose it was the sort of the fabric of the late 14th century um, and its imprint that it has on on the landscape today you know how it's indelibly sort of woven into the city as we know it now that fascinated me about him and the characters he lived there so John of Gaunt, I felt, was this sort of, in a way, a, a vessel for the excitement and the, and the lives of others and the um, political um, atmosphere. And I suppose the social atmosphere of the 14th century as well. He was kind of a way into this larger story. Um, and if you think about the Savoy Palace, as an example, Chaucer was lived there for, for a period you had... Um, You had Jean Le Bon, the king of France, who was captured at Poitiers and held at the Savoy Palace. And he had such a great time. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to go back to France to rule. He just wanted to have a lovely time sat at the Savoy drinking wine from Gascony rather than having to rule a country. So it's just sort of reimagining these characters in this place um, and what that said about the century as a whole, I think that really got me interested in in writing about John of Gaunt, who as a person, I also believe was a very European prince. I think he was very forward-thinking. I mean, we haven't even discussed some of his religious attitudes, um, as well as his political attitudes. I think he, yeah, he was a very complex, but also, um, but nuanced and forward-thinking character. As I would describe him, he was a very European prince.
0: That was Helen Carr. The Red Prince, The Life of John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, is out now, published by One World. Additionally, if you want to read an article by Helen on John of Gaunt's campaigns in Spain, you can find that at historyextra.com. Just search for John of Gaunt. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.